ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be advised that this conversation contains content that might be upsetting. Please use discretion when listening. John Patterson lived and breathed footy. Back in the 70s, John led the mighty Darwin Buffaloes to victory in an historic NTFL game. Off the field, John was taught to focus on the positive, to stand strong and to weather the storm. And this was put to the test in the early hours of Christmas Day, 1974, when John and his mum stood side by side, desperately holding their tin house together. John has become a prominent voice for the wants and needs of remote Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory. John is affiliated with the Nulakan people of Nukur. He was the CEO of the Aboriginal Medical Alliance Northern Territory for over a decade and is currently the acting CEO of the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency. Dr John Patterson, welcome to Conversations. Happy Nadog Week. John, you were born in Darwin. Now, your family home wasn't the run-of-the-mill house, was it? No, it wasn't. Look, when we uh, lived at Winelli, it was those Sydney William Huts that housed predominantly Defence Forces when they were up here back in 1942, bombing of Darwin. That's what they accommodated their workforce and, and defence personnel in. So back in the day, Dad bought one of those after the, uh, the war was over and uh, Defence was selling these um, dwellings. And we uh, thought, yeah, that'd uh, be a good start to reside in on the five-acre block at Howard Springs today. So it's still standing and it's uh, certainly proved that its structure really uh, was tested during various cyclones. What are we now? It's uh, nearly 60, 70 year old, that, that house, and still standing apart from a few renovations here and there. So I can uh, certainly vouch for Sydney William Hutz, Charlie. <laughs> they do the job. Uh, what memories do you have, John, of living out on the block? There's lots of memories, many shindigs, many stories, particularly from my grandparents and, and mum and her siblings. And into the recent years with Brother Bill and all the Retta Dixon mob, you know, that used to come out there and um, have shindigs for various celebrations, whether they birthdays or passing of a loved one or when Bill came back from Western Australia from uh, having a season of footy. So very fond memories. So that's the reason why we kept it. Fond memories they are, but it was a difficult life for you because you didn't have electricity, you didn't have water. Your memories are great for yeah. it. But when you look back over it, they were tough times. They, they certainly was, Charlie. And I reckon I, my claim to fame is I, I clean up all those other blocks in the street back in the day because there wasn't any power. We weren't on town water. So, you know, washing, we take it for granted. Now you just chuck all your clothes in a washing machine and, and put a bit of soap suds in there and away you go. But back in the day, I, you know, we had to go and chop wood fill up the copper from a well. We got water out of the well. You know, mum would put the clothes into the copper with a bit of, you know, luck soap, I think it was, or rinse soap back in the days, <laughs> and then stirred the old coppers with the old a broom handle, you know, to just make sure that the clothes were, while the fire was burning, so it was warm, you know, the water was warm and, and uh, hopefully brought the uh, the whiteness back into our clothing um, through that process. Uh, uh, bathing, you know, again, water from the well, you know, a 44-gallon drum chopped in half. And, you know, you went out there and filled it up and again got warm water from the copper, put the uh, your preferred temperature in the in the uh, half 44-gallon drum and, and away you went. You sat in there and had a, had a bogey, you know, <laughs> had a wash. So it was tough times and, and for drinking water, we actually had a um, a big steel container on the back of a trailer which me and my dad used to go it was a Sunday uh, afternoon evening sort of ritual that we'd go down to the intersection of Howard Springs Road and, and Stuart Highway there and the old pipeline that came from Manton Dam back in the day that brought water to Darwin residents there's a big tap, big hose that was supplied by government I think of the day and everybody lined up and filled up their water drums or tanks or whatever water containers they had for drinking water do you think this hard way of living prepared you for life? Absolutely, Charlie. I, I think it really stood me in good stead. You know, the strong upbringing, discipline from my mum, particularly my bub, you know, making sure that we were at least uh, going to school every day. 
Uh, I remember a couple of days that the school bus didn't rock up to pick us up. So, you know, we all sort of, our parents dropped us up the corner of Stuart Highway and Howard Springs Road again and we, we walked to school following the old railway line, which led us right through to Darwin Primary School. We were going to Darwin Primary School in those days. And uh, because the railway line came very close to Darwin Primary, so we walked and it took us half a day from Howard Springs, just casually walking the railway line and we all wanted to go to school and and uh, get the appropriate education. Now, Darwin in the 60s, romantically people look back over, it was a fabulous place and whatever. You you were there. What was life like in the 60s in Darwin? Well, hardly any traffic lights. <laughs> <laughs> there might have been one or two. But look, it was um, from memory, you know, I was, I was born 58, so, you know, I would have been six, seven-year-old that I started to remember lifestyle and done. I mean, everybody almost knew everybody. It was very multicultural with various immigrants that came and lived in Darwin for whatever reasons from all over the world. Perhaps there was some leftover from uh, the bombing of Darwin. You know, people enjoyed uh, and loved Darwin, so they wanted to stay. It was just a, uh, a very laid back. Everybody knew everybody. Petrol was cheap. Groceries were cheap. And it was hard yakka, you know, and uh, I think for those of us that grew up in that era really got a good upbringing, I believe. You know, today, I just compare it with today with social media. I mean, that all that stuff wasn't around. So, mm. you know, if you wanted to ring your mate, you'd jump on your bike and go and visit them up at their place or they'd come down to your place. No cars, you know, you jump on your push bike and you rode everywhere. So we were fit as, and uh, the friendships were very, very strong. John, your parents were strong, impressive people. Tell me about your folks. Yeah, mum's uh, mum was born at Maryfield Station. My grandmother is, was a uh, very strong leader from the town of uh, Nook or Roper River, southeast Arnhem Land, part of the uh, Nullican clan. Grandfather is uh, George Holtz. Him and his uh, brothers and other ancestors had involvement in establishing the Darwin Botanical Gardens. Uh, in recent times, there was a Holtz Cottage and there's other references to Lee Holtz for their contribution and service to establishing the Botanical Gardens back in those early days. Uh, so George Holtz was a drover. He was one of the brothers that um, worked in the past and loved cattle. So he was living and residing at Burnham, Larimar. For those that don't know, that's where that was the uh, end point of the uh, railway line between Darwin and Burdham back in particularly those defence era when mm. army had to you know move all their equipment and so um, my grandfather worked uh, or resided in a humpy outside of Larimer and they drove cattle from around Hodson Downs, Nooka, that that southeast Arnhem Land region and obviously brought them back to, to Burdham to truck them onto the train and get them up to Darn to for further export or wherever they sent the, the cattle to. Uh, and he obviously met my grandmother at Nooker on one of those trips and asked whether she'd join him to uh, uh, help with, obviously, the cattle and obviously be his long-term partner. And, uh, and then my mum was born at, at Burnham. She was one of the oldest. So. How, how did your mum meet your dad? Uh, my dad was um, obviously Scottish-English, migrated, his family migrated into Australia and to Brisbane uh, in the early days. He drove trucks from Brisbane to Darwin, uh, in the, would have been the early 50s. Mum was working at Government House at the time. Uh, he fell in love. I think he did two trips, and on his second trip he gave said to the, the truck haulage company owners, look, you better send somebody up here to pick this truck up because I ain't going back to Brisbane. I love Darwin. I, I want to make this place my home and, and uh, live here for the rest of my life. So uh, he took on taxi driving, and then one night Mum needed a lift home from Government House, and uh, he was the taxi. He was driving the taxi that came and uh, gave her a lift and uh, obviously love at first sight or over a few months or weeks, whatever it took, and uh, the rest is history. Here I am, me and my other two younger sisters, uh, along with our older siblings. I mean, I'd just say that we've all had, even though we've got different surnames, our, uh, we've all had the same mother, different fathers, the whole nine of us. Now, some of your older brothers and sisters were taken away from your mum. Mm. What happened to, you, to your brothers and sisters? Yeah, look, for various reasons, they were um, put into Redder Dixon Home. Uh, Redder Dixon Home in those days was established on Bagot Reserve before it moved up to Totem Road, you know, in recent times where the mission was actually abolished and closed down. 
they, they did both places, at Bagot and at Totem Road uh, sites. Bill was fortunate enough to, um, he was probably 16, 15, 16 when football uh, uh, recruiters came to, to Darwin and saw him play footy and uh, offered him, you know, to go to Perth and continue his career in football with the West Perth Football Club. Uh, but my other older siblings, they, they actually stayed in um, stayed in Red Dixon until such time as my mum and my dad built this house at, uh, out at Howard Springs and then um, had the, the space and the, the home to get them out of Red Dixon and bring us all together at Howard Springs. And For those who don't know what Red Dixon's home was, was it a holding facility for children? What, what was the whole plan of it? It was a um, institution like the the bungalows and you know other faith group institutions where governments at the day under the old Native Title Act removed kids from particularly you know the lighter skin kids from their um, from their parents uh, and many of them were born in the bush in those remote communities but government at the time um, you know had this terrible policy when we look, reflect back now and look on the impact it's had on uh, all of our brothers and sisters that spent time in these institutions and, and the abuse and all the ongoing stuff that's come out in a number of Royal Commissions and inquiries. Ritter Dixon was, was run by the Aboriginal Inland Mission Faith Group. Some of those other institutions run by Catholic Uniting Church and other faith groups. Ritter Dixon, yeah, was, was um, predominantly AIM. John, not all the children were taken. How was that decision made? Um, look, I think uh, there were parents at the time that chose to put their, um, their their kids into these institutes because they just didn't have the capacity. You know, they obviously didn't have their own home. You know, accommodation back in those days was probably very rough. I mean, I know, you know, myself living at the back of Kennan's after we moved from Manelli, it was just corrugated iron and, and steel, dirt floors. And, you know, many, many of them were single parents and just didn't have the capacity, you know. They obviously had to get out and work. Childcare agencies were probably non-existent back in those days, so um, the next best thing, I suppose, or options for them was to put them in, in these institutions, hopefully, you know, to be cared for uh, by these faith groups and, and their um, carers. Others were, were totally removed, you know, I mean, and then the abuse that they copped was unacceptable and we, we hear those horrific stories today as as people share those through the various inquiries and, and other um, government processes. So Bill, for example, he, he saw it as an opportunity. He didn't want to reflect on the, the negatives. That's his choice. Others, you know, and my other older siblings that spent time in Reddit Dixon suffered terrible treatment and care. We don't try to talk about it openly. Um, you know, they've had a brief discussion with us to share with us our, their experience in there. And um, so we, we choose just to focus on the positives and because it is hurtful, you know. I mean, and we've seen that by many of those that have fronted the inquiries to share their stories and their experience in those institutions, what what sort of terrible stress, social, emotional well-being impact that it's had on them, the intergenerational trauma that it's put on families, you know? Mm. It must be difficult when the family get together um, and you say, like, you had family gatherings, some were institutionalised children and some were not. Some had good memories and some didn't Mm. have good memories. I mean, generally, is that not something that ever gets talked about when the group's together? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's more about celebrating now in the... Uh, for those that are lef- left with us now, Charlie, I mean, I know when we used to have the shindigs out at Howard Springs when I was 9 to 12-year-old, to I was in charge, you know, of the, the music, the old vinyl record players uh, with the old radiograms, I think they called them, you know, with the needle, you had to put the needle in the vinyl, vinyl records to make sure it, it uh, started at the right place. My memories of those shindigs were and, and events and functions was for them to just get away from those institutes and try and, you know, come together, even though, you know, they weren't biologically related, but they treated themselves, they saw themselves as brothers and sisters because they were part of that institution, you know, and they, they had to create their own family being and, and uh, 
develop, establish those relationships, which over all those years, very, very strong. It was, I know, you know, the Reda Dixon family was a really strong united family. You know, they supported each other through various challenges in life and um, it was uh, it was really heartening to see them come and listen to music, sing songs and, you know, share their, whether they were coming in from, you know, working in, on those pastoral stations or Bill coming up from Perth, you know, sharing his, his football experience at, at uh, playing footy down there and others, you know, obviously making a name for themselves in whatever career pathways that they chose to, to go into. So the, the the family group that was established was actually the group that lived in Reda Dixon. What was their connection like with the other kids who didn't go to Reda Dixon? How, how yeah, I, I think everybody embraced it, eh? everybody. You know, I myself, I, I was fortunate enough not to experience the Reda Dixon or those other institutes, um, you know, being one of those kids put into there. But again, we tried not to dwell on that because it, for some, like I keep saying, it was a terrible experience. So, you know, we thought, we talked about, okay, well, what are we going to do, you know? Um, how are we going to, well, what's the plan for the next 12 months? What careers, you know, are people going, you know, are they changing their jobs? Are they, are they uh, moving interstate? You know, introducing, meeting other family members, you know, after knowing that they had other siblings um, that maybe they they were put in different institutions. So that was a time for celebration. As you'd be well aware, Charlie, that, that you know, stolen generation era had a terrible, terrible impact and a lot of hurt during mm. that period. And we wanted to focus purely on the positiveness, you know, celebrations and birthdays and obviously sad times of passings, you know, sorry, business. The priority of it was to you know, really turn that negative into positives and celebrate the good times. So you were not in, you were not in Reda Dixon, but you were with your mum when Cyclone Tracy struck Darwin. Yeah, the eve of 74. So I, I uh, left school. I needed to earn some pocket money. My brother-in-law had a um, building contract out at Large Amanda Building Houses and he had to come in and get some supplies before, you know, Christmas. And he said, oh, you know, you want to come out and be our labourer? until Christmas time, we were back at Christmas. Yeah, I said, yep, no worries. So I uh, went out with my sister and brother-in-law and uh, did the labouring out there. And because we were out there and, you know, the communication, you know, we had no access to ABC radio or any other radio or communication for that matter. So, you know, it was just full-on work, get up in the morning and go and do work. And we'd finished the contract and it was Christmas, Christmas Eve, that we got back in Adan. Uh, we all got paid and um, I thought, yeah, OK, well, got on to me mates from school, schoolmates, and said, back in town, I'm cashed up, let's go and uh, have a couple of beers in town and, you know, Christmas Eve, it's time for a celebration. So um, came in with my mates and uh, after the nightclubs closed, our, our mate who uh, was driving the car, Sober Bob, was driving down Bacon Road and he was swerving all over the place. We said, you sure you hadn't had a drink tonight, bro? And he said, no, no. There's a threatening of a cyclone. Cyclone Tracy's just out in the, the harbour. I said, what? And like I said, because we hadn't had any communication radio connection at large amount at the time, I, I had no idea that Darwin was imminent of being hit by uh, Cyclone Tracy. So if we dropped him out of the northern suburbs. The rest of us lived in the rural Howard Springs area. I got dropped off at home at the old Sydney William Hart and I got home about 2 o'clock, I reckon, and... Uh, by about five, 4.30, I reckon it was, in the morning, Mum come in, John, John, get up, we need your help, we need your help. And I was a little bit seedy, uh, having a couple of hours sleep, and I said, what's going on? Cyclone's coming, the cyclone's about to hit us, it's hitting us, can't you feel the, the wind? And it was just because it came in from the, the west after it went out to sea and it, it backtracked, as you recall, Charlie, uh, and it just hit, you know, it was just full on, I was looking down, you know, along the house, the old Sydney William Hutt, and there was just this big bow with the uh, the steel, and um, we all had our shoulders up against it, you know, to keep uh, keep the pressure and, and, and hopefully prevent it from uh, caving in or parts of the the structure from being lifted and, and blown away, which would have then opened it up, opened up gaps, which would have just allowed the the force of the wind velocity to just 
smashed the place, I, I believe. We watched our, our shed go flying in the wind. We watched neighbours, you know, uh, infrastructure and sheds go flying. Trees were just not a leaf on a tree, mm. you know, for about a 30, 30, well, it would be more than that, Berry Springs, I reckon. I remember coming in from uh, outside of Berry Springs. It was trees that leaves on it, but as soon as you came, like, at that radius... It was just like someone had just got a big vacuum cleaner and vacuumed all the leaves off the trees. It was just bad. But the old Sydney Williams hut stood, The old Sydney stood, Williams hut stood solid. I must say, Charlie, she's uh, seen all the cyclones and uh, everything thrown at it, and uh, she's still standing to this day. All right, let's talk about your life after school. You started off your professional career, John, as a garbologist or as it's known, a garbo. <laughs> what led you there? Well, Charlie, I was, uh, I was about to become a dad, February 1976. So I had to leave school, um, you know, uh, year 11, and uh, go and get a job ASAP uh, to support the, the new bud that was coming on. So I, um, somebody said, hey, Pat, they're looking for garbos. I said, what's involved there? He said, oh, you... Had to keep up. You got to keep up with the trucks. I mean, it's just non-stop. They just pull up and just you throw your rubbish in the, the old aluminium um, rubbish cans bins back in those days. Not this electronic arm stuff now, where they just you know you don't you only need the driver in them. So there's about three guys that would work on each truck. So two two runners at the back that would stand on these these platforms, and when the truck pulls up, jumps off, gets the bins and chuck them in and. The truck would be off, the driver would be off, and you got to keep up. It was fortunate I was playing footy, and, and it was additional training, I saw it, for my football <laughs> career. So, uh, But it was good hours, you know, five till we start early in the morning, nice and cool, and we'd be finished by 10 o'clock, so uh, we had the rest of the day to ourselves. But it was something I really enjoyed. I, I did it for about, I reckon, six to eight months, Charlie. Um, well, that's pretty good. Now, were there any perks in the job? They were. It was. I, I remember it was around at Christmas period. I reckon it was um, the 1975 Christmas period when I got the job. That uh, old Darwinians, you know, uh, would come out with cartons or a bottle of, uh, you know, wine and say, "Hey guys, thanks for um, you know continuing picking up our garbage for for all these years." And here, yeah, look, here's a bit of an appreciation for for your work. Uh, so cartons of beer, we had, you know, all sorts of gifts given to us by very generous Territorians at the time. And, uh, yeah, it sort of um, gave us a, uh, a bit of a motivation to keep going and, and clean up the, the suburbs uh, during that period. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, after working for some time as, as a garbologist, uh, your life is about to take a, an about turn. You entered uh, the world of Aboriginal affairs, John. Talk us about the transition. How how did that actually happen, that you went from being the Garbo to working, I think, with the Northern Land Council? So it would have been late 78, Charlie. I did Garbologist and I did some laundry time with, uh, at Royal Darwin Hospital mm. in the lead-up of um, towards the end of 1978. And I don't know whether you recall, but back then um, they had these old... Well, not old, but Northern Territory Public Service would have these... Um, public exams, you go and sit a test and from that they would see whether you were, had any potential or or um, uh, was that somebody that they were looking for in the Northern Territory Government at the time. And so I sat one of those and I thought I uh, probably failed um, because I didn't complete year, year, uh, year 12 and have the appropriate skill sets that they were after. But out of the blue this phone call came through um, just after, well it would have been uh, just prior to Christmas 78 by the Northern Territory Public Service uh, asking whether I'd come in for an interview uh, with the Chief Minister Department back in the day. So I did that and uh, was successful in securing a entry clerk position, AR1 they called them back in those days. And my I started with the Northern Territory Public Service, Chief Minister Department, Office of Aboriginal Liaison on the 1st of January 1979. I can add here a little bit because I remember what was happening at that time. Paul Everyon was the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory and he made a speech to the Legislative Assembly about a five-year plan to improve the lives of Aboriginal people and one of the things he was asking for was that there was more Aboriginal people recruited into the public service. So that was what people were trying to do, was to try and get people who showed 
you know, some ability yeah, to exactly. actually get them into the public service. Obviously, you sat the exam and you were seen as someone with that potential. Yeah. So that, I mean, we, we should never forget that Paul Everingham, the Chief Minister at the time, drove that was a, and it was fairly innovative. I mean, no one else was doing anything like that around Australia. This was soon after the Northern Territory got self-government. Self-government, And yeah. it was their new plan, so... yeah. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that, Charlie, but um, that that explains why a, a number of Indigenous Territorians ended up getting these base grade entry, even though at base grade it was a foot in the door. and online. This is Conversations with Charlie King. John, you were talking about your start in the public service, but at the same time you were a pretty good footy player. What happened on that special day the Buffaloes won the NTFL Premiership? Yeah, sure, Charlie. As you were, Buffaloes has a big support support base here in, in Darwin, and um, you know we had people working in Park Territory Parks and Wildlife. We were looking at mascots for the for the day, and uh, one of them came up with the idea that we'd get a um, buffalo, a baby buffalo uh, heifer. That could be our mascot to run out, you know, under tight control of. of um, our supporters to ensure that uh, the buffalo didn't escape or run amok. Anyway, you know, the buffalo arrived in the back of a trailer and got him off and hooked up the, the ropes. And baby buffaloes, as you were, Charlie, their horns aren't well developed. And this one was a little heifer. And, uh, <laughs> the, so his horn was about that big. Anyway, you know, the, the, the guy in charge tied these ropes up and I know one of them definitely was Bigfoot Babin, Donald Babin. He was, they, they said, foot. Bigfoot, you got to hang on to this rope now and you got to take control of this buffalo because he'll get away, he'll run out there. So anyway, um, and I'm being the captain, I'm right behind him, you know, I've got to lead the team out in the garden's oval. And uh, away we went, you know, yep, time to run out. Anyway, the buffalo come loose, the ropes just slipped off the <laughs> horns, you know. And this buffalo got loose around the garden's oval and it was just chaotic. It was, it was fun. I mean, you know, the guy obviously managed it very well. He had a good... Uh, risk management plan in place to capture this buffalo and get him back on the trailer. But it was just a great entertainment, pre-grand final entertainment, you know. That's right, it was yeah. <laughs> pre-match entertainment. It was pre-match entertainment. Yeah, never forget that. Mm. You know, Jeff Bates, uh, credit to him as well, the coach, very tough coach on us. And uh, he obviously had the, the best team of on the day and um, we led from... Bounce, first bounce, the last bounce. Do you remember the feeling you had when you actually won the premiership? It was just unbelievable, Charlie. And I can still see myself, you know, the holy grail of football ovals here in the Northern Territory being the Gardens Oval and being captain, a premiership captain, standing up, you know, with the premiership trophy with Batesy that was presented by the uh, AFL president, I think, on the day. And just with all the Buffalo mob, you know, like I say, it was... I think that particular day we had the biggest, one of the biggest crowds at football. They were hanging from the rafters. And remember they had the commentator's box, that brick, the brick building, and they had the canteen yeah. underneath and all the commentators had to go up, walk up the stairs and, and broadcast, do their broadcast from up top. They were hanging off there as well and um, the whole surroundings of Gardens Old at that time was just chockers. Amazing. Ama and just by everybody running onto the field, you know, after the... Siren went and uh, joining in the celebrations, just one hell of an event that I'll never, ever forget. These are incredible moves for a man who was brought up in a little tin shed and then gradually found his way into the public service and then the Northern Land Council. But I even greater changes were about to come for you because you then got involved with the bus ride that took people from around Australia to protest in Sydney. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right, Charlie. I mean, as you were, the Northern Land Council... Uh, it was the, has a role and responsibility for um, 
implementing the uh, the views and opinions of traditional owners from right around the Northern Territory, those that had their land land claims handed back to them, and to represent Aboriginal people when they come together with other land councils from right around the country to undertake the appropriate advocacy and lobby processes that needed to, needed to take place as they saw fit. So at that time, in 1988, as we we're all aware, was the um, um, bicentennial celebrations uh, and they had a big, big event, a week's program in, in uh, Sydney where they had a lot of reenactment of the tall ships, etc., coming into um, Botany Bay and it was the land councils from right around the nation saw fit that they needed to get a message to the Australian public that there was no such thing as terra nullius. You know, Aboriginal people lived in Australia for, you know, thousands of years. There's enough evidence now, anthropological evidence that confirms that. And so they wanted to send a message to the government that, that Aboriginal people should deserve the appropriate recognition and, and rights to be uh, the ancestors of this, of this country. So we... Uh, planned a, a trip and organised under the leadership of Dr Akit to uh, take a number of Aboriginal people from the Northern Territory, from all parts right across the Northern Territory, uh, down to Sydney to uh, participate in the, the campaign. We left uh, Bees Creek, the, the footy out there, some districts. We, uh, you know, there's about eight eight buses and a couple of troopies and a big truck to chuck all our swags. And I mean, this was a a big trip, and I mean, it was a it was heading to a protest rally. You picked up people along the way as well, but some people actually passed away. I mean, th- this was on the trip. But this this was a difficult journey to to take. What what are your memories of the trip from down to Sydney? Yeah, you did right, uh, Charlie. So in Catherine, we, we picked up all the Kimberley mob that came across uh, and, and joined the convoy in, in Catherine. We went to Tenner Creek. We picked up some of the Western Queensland groups that came across the Barclay and joined us in Tenner Creek. Alice Springs, big contingent there because the Central Land Council, um, you know, uh, representatives joined the convoy as well. And, um, yeah, it was unfortunate when it got... I reckon it was around about Port Augusta, uh, one of our elders that was on the on the bus passed on us, which was, which really rocked us, really really sad. So that delayed, you know, a couple of us. We had to, we wanted to make sure that we provide the appropriate support and assistance to the gentleman who passed, and make sure that you know he was given all the respect and dignitary that uh, and support and assistance to ensure that you know he was he was um, cared for or, or his body was. Uh, transported home for for families to um, obviously undertake the uh, the burial proceedings, but very sad. It put a dampener on us. But look, um, as we continued on the on the journey, at night we pull up and and uh, again you know get together as a group to um, express our sadness and sympathy and but then to also focus on okay we've got to get to Sydney to La Perouse because it's big campaign that we've got to attend to. So we were on a pretty tight time frame. What happened when you arrived in Sydney? How, how yeah, was yeah. So um, so the convoy, yeah, by this time, we because in Port Augusta we met some of the mob that came across from the bottom of Western Australia and some of the South Australian mob came up and joined us and the convoy I reckon would have been about oh, 20, 30, you know, these eight, 12-seater buses. Wow. Um, big, yeah, big convoy it was and there's photos around us going across I think the um, the flat country around um, New South Wales, um, Hay and those sorts of places, you know, those mm. communities, rural communities. There's a great shot of somebody that's taken this photo of this, all these convoys. Uh, anyway, we, we finally liaised with um, New South Wales Police and they met us at a place called Wittagong, just outside of uh, Sydney, and they provided the appropriate escort into, into La Perouse. And uh, I can recall, you know, I was in the passenger seat of the bus as we pulled into La Perouse and the amount of people, First Nations people along the, the street of the entrance into La Perouse, just applauding, you know, because they obviously heard the stories of, you know, um, the passing and, and uh, how far we'd come, you know. It, it was about a five, six day road trip mm. back in those days. We didn't want to, you know, speed or do it in, in a fast pace. but. The excitement, the applaud, the the tears that flowed from everybody as we drove into the gates of or the entry gates of of La Perouse, and then obviously you know it was hugs and kisses and high fives once we 
once we parked the, the vehicles and, and rejoiced with thousands and thousands of other people mm. at the time. Were you motivated by what came out of um, Sydney because you took a bit of a break when you came back to the Territory? You went off and studied in, in Western Australia? Yeah, that's right, Charlie, yep. Secured a scholarship that allowed me to go to uh, uni to um, undertake studies. I chose Edith Cowan University because they had a, a course there titled uh, Bachelor of Social Science Human Service Management. And I, uh, the content and the, the, the uh, units part of that program, that course, was something that I was looking for, you know, something I wanted to be multi-skilled. I wanted to be right across all the human service portfolios, whether it's education, health, law, uh, employment, housing, you know. This course was, it attracted me and it wasn't offered anywhere else. And then you returned to the Territory and you'd joined ATSIC. So the ATSIC elections were 1993 to 1996. Um, I was elected there and then somebody suggested that I should also put my nomination for the ATSIC commissioner. So um, I did that and uh, it was conducted by the Australian Electoral Commission. It was a um, preferential voting system. There's a, a field, you know, a Melbourne Cup field that ran for the position and I thought I had Buckley's. But as it turned out... Um, I, after all the preferences were distributed and final count was made and I was announced the successful Commissioner for ATSIC top mm. end zone, which then took me into office at the ATSIC Commissioner office from 1993 to 1996. Uh, mm. So ATSIC, its life wasn't that long and, and there's lots of people may comment about what it achieved and what it didn't, didn't achieve. You were there, you were involved with it. What, what, what was achieved by Hatsi. I mean, when you look back at yeah. it, what do you think? Was it a good thing? Absolutely. I, I th you know, and I think um, politicians at the federal level even um, came to a conclusion that it was probably an error for governments to um, to abolish Hatsik. Uh The advantage of Hatsik I saw was that it was a one-stop shop. First Nations people could go there right around the country and get all their issues dealt with, or you know, they were able to go and present or raise the issues with, with bureaucrats particularly for, for whatever reasons they may have um, wanted to visit the ATSIC offices. And ever since then, I, I, I believe, you know, it was then all those portfolios were all given back to our respective government departments, which made it really difficult then for people to go and have their issues dealt with because when you're, when you're faced with the disadvantage that most of our mob are faced with, um, there's layers and layers and layers of issues, you know. If you don't have good housing, that's going to lead to poor health, mm. poor education, unemployment. So, you know, expecting someone to run around to all the various different government departments, um, raising those concerns or getting it addressed by, by government bureaucracy was one of the unacceptable time-wasting and it just... People gave up in the end. It mm. was just too much. They would prefer to just go to one place like ATSIC was and get those issues raised and, and dealt with. Those issues you were fighting for back in the 90s, has much changed now in 2023? Charlie, I think in all my recent working uh, at the national level now, I, I think one portfolio that can we can really um, put our hands on our heart and say that we've made some improvement has been the health sector. I mean, they're very organised well-structured in terms of getting grassroots issues up through the uh, respective jurisdictional structures and then at a national level, you know, through NACHO, which then has the uh, has access to all the ministers, you know, health ministers. Uh, they have a national board that can um, advocate and influence, you know, governments to address the number of health issues and we, we see that day-to-day -day enormous issues that are impacting on on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in this country. So uh, some of the lesser successful issues that I've observed, education. You know, there are some success stories, but, you know, when I go remote communities and I hear stories that, you know, somebody completing Year 7 at a remote primary school, when they do the proper assessment, they're, they're almost equivalent to a Grade 4 or 5 student in suburbia, you know, primary schools which is really sad. We want them to be able to complete it at the right standard of, of um, education level, grade seven particularly, and then going into those middle schools and, and uh, the higher senior schools, middle senior schools that uh, 
education structures have these days. And then hopefully on a university, you know, and then get all those skills and learnings to be competitive once they uh, enter into the workforce. So after uh, ATSIC, you found your way into the health field and actually got involved with AMSENT, which is the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance Northern Territory. You became the head of that organisation. And so what, what are some of the, the changes that you've been involved with at AMSENT that you're most proud of? Yeah, Charlie, I, look, it was... Uh, only a couple of years into the job and um, the Australian government, you'll recall, um, under John Howard uh, government, made a decision in, in Parliament to roll out the Australian government intervention in 2007. Um, the announcement was made and then it was, you know, implementation, putting in all the various structures and systems and processes that that uh, required the uh, the implementation of the, the intervention. One of those uh, proposed... Uh, measures that they wanted to be have part of the intervention was to have these compulsory child sexual health checks. And now the Aboriginal health leadership said this breaches all declarations from the United Nations right across to, you know, all the other instruments, government uh, instruments that pertain to, the, to children you know, right around the world, including Australia. So, you know, I was out there in the media totally opposing calling on the government to remove this and thankfully that uh, common sense prevailed and it was it was uh, removed to just having you know the normal child health checks which the Aboriginal community control health sectors uh, originally developed you know mm. and and uh, designed for making sure that child health checks were being undertaken on a regular basis so that was one of the big um, the big challenges two years into the job so we had success there until more recently you know the pandemic. Now, you were a voice that very clearly was saying more needed to be done for remote communities when the pandemic hit. Were you being heard? I, I think so, Charlie. Look, 2021, it really, it, it sort of started to get into Australia, into the borders, you know, international tourists, you know, travelling at that time and bringing the virus into Australia. And then uh, once we had confirmation that it was widespread, it was spreading at a rate of knots, you know, this is one of the fastest spreading viruses, particularly to, uh, you know, populations, disadvantaged populations that might have had chronic illnesses. You know, Aboriginal communities were at high risk. If it ever broke into those communities, then it would almost, we were saying it was going to be detrimental, or have a huge detrimental impact on our population if it ever got into remote communities the way it did. People were terrified. Absolutely. Absolutely, Charlie. So we we needed to get uh, influence government. So APONT collectively came together and, and called on governments at all levels that we needed to close the borders. If there's one way to try and contain this virus and, and reduce the risk of it getting into the territory and getting into our remote communities, then we needed to you know, shut the borders, the territory borders to, to other jurisdictions unless there are some certain criteria, you know, you're either a specialist or doctor or health worker. But it was an effective measure. Traditional owners were advocating. They were ringing, Pato, you better get on and tell them, fellas, we don't want visitors anymore out here, you know. Mm. We don't want people visiting. We just want to lock our community up until we're confident that the uh, the virus was being dealt with and that appropriate vaccinations were... were we had, that is the other big challenge, Charlie, with vaccinating our mob, you know. Mm. There's all the scaremongering stuff going on. So, Well, misinformation made it really, really difficult. I mean, it was already a difficult thing to do, but how, how, how much harder did that make it for the services? Obviously, you know, we had smart smart leaders in the health sector, you know, community and our, and our doctors and nurses that work in our sector. So we had to combat, you know, we had to come up with strategies and ideas and, and messaging to combat all that negative stuff that was going on in community. Um, so, you know, that required, you know, using our interpreters, getting posters made in appropriate languages, you know, that all the different communities could easily understand, getting our interpreters and, and speakers on, on the radio, on, on um, you know, YouTube, little snippets, you know, and... I might add there was some really deadly and creative messaging going on and um, that really got the message across. Short, sharp and precise manner, so that really helped. Uh, I believe that was probably one of our most effective strategies of, of getting that message out to our most re remotest communities and population. Mm. 
had that COVID actually got into those remote communities, it would have been devastating. You may have saved the lives of hundreds and hundreds of people. Is it satisfaction for you? Yeah, reflecting back, and we do reflect back, Charlie, the Aboriginal leadership and, and say how, how effective we were. And I think we've all come to the conclusion that we all should share the accolades of reducing the number of our mob that were... Um, our, some of our mob passed from this mm. deadly virus, but there could have been many more. And if it wasn't because of the leadership that the... Uh, uh, the health sector, health leaders and our other leaders and land councils and um, other Aboriginal peak organisations by influencing and advocating to governments um, about, um, you know, those measures to keep our communities safe. If it wasn't for the, for the strong support and advocacy work of our Aboriginal leadership here in the Northern Territory, we would have been in a worse situation, I believe. And you were given a nickname? Yeah, well... Um, <laughs> I, I tend to, you know, get a laugh from it, but they said, oh, Paddy, you've done really deadly at keeping this COVID at bay. We're going to give you a nickname of King COVID. King COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Thoroughly deserved. Thoroughly. And Don Archie is Queen COVID. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> now, can we go back to health, the health issues? There are many health issues out there that you continue to deal with. How, how difficult was it in having to, to work on some of those really serious cases and, and how much success did you have? That's an interesting question, Charlie. You raised and, and very pertinent one. I mean, during COVID, all the attention was done was focusing on keeping COVID at bay and, and getting you know vaccination rates up. Whilst we all had all our attention on that, we didn't have the workforce because the workforce was also decimated, you know, because of the restrictions on all the borders and people just wanted to stay home, you know, because we uh, health service here in the Northern Territory have a high reliability on, on people coming from interstate doing this FIFO arrangement, you know, particularly in some of those remote communities where it's very difficult to get and retain workforce. So whilst we're dealing, and, and, and rightly so, given priority to COVID, many of our clients who had those ongoing chronic illnesses, you know, were also sort of put on the back burner, so to speak, yeah. because the attention just wasn't, and the workforce just wasn't there to keep, you know, COVID at bay and also continue the day-to-day primary health care for our mobs. So, again, I, I think we did that and we, we dealt with that uh, effectively well. But, you know, there was a big catch-up, a lot of catching up to do once we got COVID at bay and reduced the, the infectious rates, you know. Uh, it, we then had to turn our attention on to, you know, clients that obviously have uh, higher rates of chronic illnesses. You know, there's a large population of that. Renal dialysis, as we see, is is obviously on the improved big numbers. You know, the tsunami is here in regards to renal failure and people requiring renal dialysis um, uh, treatment. Cardiovascular disease, rheumatic heart disease, these are all preventable diseases, Charlie. Mm. And, you know, we keep saying to governments, governments, we need the appropriate political leadership, we need the appropriate government investment if we're going to get on top of it, if we're going to get on the closing the life expectancy gap for our men and women here in the Northern Territory who have the highest, the highest life expectancy gap to other Australians, brothers and sisters, non-Indigenous around the country, is just unacceptable and we can change that, Charlie. We can definitely change it if we get the genuine commitment from all levels of government. Mm. We've been talking about your professional life, but behind it all is a strong family man. The family you've made is a blended one. Can you talk us through it? Yeah, sure, Charlie. Um, my first wife was Christine Christopherson. She had Tiffany, and um, that's why I had to get out the job and get up, get on the garbage trucks, help support the two. And we had four kids, two older girls, two younger sons, and then um, uh, marriage didn't work out as well as we, we wanted to and expected. So we divorced. Uh, I then uh, remarried to Cindy. And we've got two girls, two older girls. Together we've we've got six, six all up, six kids. Uh, Christine was unfortunately diagnosed with an aggressive cancer that uh, took her life eventually. I reflect back now and, um, you know, obviously not seeing the grandkids grow up and uh, mm. our, our kids, you know, mature into fine adults and good parents and enjoying all those celebratory occasions and, and events and... Um, you know, even um, uh, prior to passing, I you know we'd go up and, and visit visit her while she was in the hospice there, and uh, you know we had a 
few words, you know, last last words to say to each other and just said we, um, you know, we still loved each other and cared for one another and um, that I continue to be a good dad. But look, we're, we're a strong family. We celebrate all the anniversaries, even her passing, and um, go to a special spot down at East Point and um, have a barbecue there, all the, all the family and friends. And, um, yeah, she'll uh, never be forgotten. What's next for you, John? Gee whiz, Charles. Look, while I'm healthy and fit and, you know, still got the fire in the belly, I'll continue to do the advocacy work, you know, all our mob want me to do. And until somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, Pato, that's enough now, you know, you can hang up the boots, then... Uh, uh, but until that time comes, I, I, I love what I'm doing. love what I'm doing. I love our mob for all their um, support and uh, friendship that they've given me over the years, particularly my family for, uh, you know, their, their ongoing support. I, you know, I do a lot of things. I do a lot of travel. I'm at a lot of meetings, and if it wasn't without their support, and they... They assess me as well, you know, on weekends. We have family little cups of teas and, and morning teas and they, it's a time of reflection and if I've said something wrong or done something wrong, they soon let me know and uh, get me back on track. But as people, working with other leaders as well, I, I, it's not about me, Charlie, it's about you. You, you promote and all the, all the stuff, you know, in the media that you do well and you, you make us all accountable, you know, and, and your work you do on a voluntary basis as well. We're all we're all doing our bit, hopefully, to bring a better a better future for our mob. Indeed, I agree with you. Dr. John Patterson, thank you for being my guest on Conversations. Thanks, Charlie. Greatly appreciated. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Charlie King. Dr. John Patterson was my guest on Conversations today. You can hear this conversation and my conversations with Nova Paris and Leanne Little on the ABC Listen app or the Conversations website. I'm Charlie King. Thanks for listening and happy NADOC week. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.